Our scripture reading is from Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16, on page 834 of the Bible. We'll read the first 22 verses of Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 and verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You sat before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. So far the reading of our scripture this evening. The text for the sermon is actually in Acts chapter 2. So if you would turn there with me in Acts chapter 2, at the close of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, 
We read in verse 39, Acts chapter 2 and verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Dear friends, when the Apostle Peter was preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, can you for a moment put yourself in the shoes of those people who heard this preaching? And when the realization began to dawn on them that they had nailed to a cross their own king, their own savior, their own Messiah, the very one whom God had anointed to be their Savior, to be their King, they had with their own hands, well, not with their own hands, it was done by way of the Romans, but they had participated in and called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And now, my friends, again, can you put yourself in their shoes this evening as that realization begins to dawn on them and as the logic of Peter's words begins to form in their minds, That the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we call him Lord Jesus Christ. For them, it would have just been Jesus. But this Jesus, says Peter, this Jesus rose from the dead. And we are witnesses of it. And now that begins to gel in their own minds. It begins to take shape. That man was the Messiah. That man was the king. Who else could have risen from the dead? And we saw it. And you can imagine the awful, crushing conviction that must have come over them at that time when they began to realize what they had done. And it says in in our chapter in, in the book of Acts, when Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, or pierced to the heart. They were crushed under a sense of what they had done. And they cry out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In their distress, in their agony, in the conviction that has dawned on them, they cry out, what must we do? And my friends, Peter responds with the gospel. Very simply, he responds with the gospel. And he says, repent, And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In that man, in the name of that man who you crucified to a cross. Now isn't that something? That what you did out of malice, and what you did out of your blind rage, God has made that Jesus to be the sin offering for your sin. And when you take refuge in him and turn from your sins, well, says Peter, your sins will be forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in our text, for the promise is for you. And my friends, in the the Greek language that the Bible was originally written in, verse 39 reads like this, for you, the promise is. And that's how the people in those days would put something at the front of the clause or at the front of the sentence for emphasis. Because that now is an astounding fact, my friends the astounding, the amazing grace of the gospel that God says, for you. For you crucifiers of Jesus Christ, 
there is a promise. A promise that if you will repent of your sins and take refuge in Christ, your sins will be forgiven you. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that in itself is, is such a sermon, isn't it? Uh, that we can never get to the bottom of that, can we? We can never plumb the depths and the beauty of that gospel message. Because, my friends, everyone I'm looking at here today is a crucifier of Christ. Yeah, that's right. And the preacher here tonight is also a crucifier of Christ. Your sins, my sins, made it necessary for him to come and to die. And the beauty of the gospel, my friends, is that for you, there is a promise, a blessed and happy promise, that if we repent and take refuge in Jesus, our sins are forgiven us. And on that happy day of Pentecost, my friends, 3,000 people came to Christ, received the gospel, and received the sign and the seal of that gospel. They came under the waters of baptism. Oh, what a happy day that must have been. Can you imagine the joy, my friends? Can you put yourself, I asked you already to put yourself in their shoes to experience the distress they must have felt. But now, just as deep as their distress had gone, how high their joy must have gone when they realized that their sin had been covered, that the cross of Christ was an atonement also for their sins, that they had been forgiven. And now they could have felt that water of baptism coming down upon them, sealing to them, that as our catechism says, as surely as I feel the water, or as I see the water, so surely are all my sins forgiven me. What a wonder that must have been, my friends, for those people who expected hell, who deserved hell, who should have been sent out of God's presence immediately. And yet to hear, there is a promise for you. Now, my friends, I want to take that one step further. Because Peter says there's a promise for you. But he goes on, and he says, for you and for your children. And that's really the focus of the sermon this evening. And for your children. What do those words mean? We've always treasured those words in the, in the Reformed churches because we believe, right, as our catechism teaches us, that uh, our children also are included in God's covenant and under God's grace. That's how we understand those words. Is that how Peter would have intended those words to have been understood? It's a question I want to take up with you this evening. Because this is one of the things that sets us apart from so many other churches, right, who, who don't understand why we would give the, the, the covenant sign, why we would bring our children under the waters of baptism, when they can give no indication that they've repented. That's what Peter said, right? Repent. Repent and be baptized. Right? Peter makes no promise to anyone who hadn't repented. Right? If, if somebody had come and asked the apostles for baptism, right, and the apostles had asked them, well, are you sorry for your sins? Do you own yourself to be guilty in God's sight? And he said, well, no, but I would still like to be baptized. That, that's absurd, isn't it? They would never have allowed someone to be baptized who had no sign of repentance. Well, then, such uh, churches would have us to understand these words that when Peter is preaching, he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, for the promises for you and for your children. In other words, you're standing here as adults, but just as in the congregation this evening, there are children. And if those children are able to hear 
and to understand what is being said. And if in, in their own childlike way, they, are, they, they repent, they hate their sins, and they turn from them, and they, they take hold of the promise of salvation in Christ, that they also may receive the sign of that salvation, that sign of God's grace. Now, we have no problem with that, right? Of course. Certainly Peter meant that. That we don't disagree with our Baptist brothers and sisters there. That's certainly what Peter intended, right? That if there were children there, even as there are children here, and they understand the gospel and they repent. No, we don't say, well, wait till you're 16 or 18 or 20, right? No, of course. We, 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 we take delight to see the repentance of our children. But in the Reformed churches, we've understood that to be something more, though. That it's not just Peter saying the gospel is for you and for your children. And Peter even goes on, right? He says, and for all who are afar off. But in the Reformed churches, we have seen that, those, that word there, and for your children, as a formula. As a formula. I'll say more about that. I want to consider in the first place the audience. Now, why would we consider the audience uh, who Peter is speaking to? This is critical for understanding these words, dear friends. Because remember that when we, under, when we read the Scripture, we want to hear the Scripture as those who heard it first would have heard it. So I guess I'm going to, for the third time tonight, I'm going to ask you to get into the shoes of the people who heard the word that Peter was preaching. Because I want you to hear it as they would have heard it. Now, what was Peter's audience? Who were the people to whom he was preaching? Well, if you have the book of uh, Acts chapter 2 open... You can see that in Acts 2 and verse 11. Acts 2 and verse 11, we read that the people to whom Peter was preaching were both Jews and proselytes. So these people were either ethnic Jews, people who had grown up in the Jewish religion, or people who had converted to the Jewish religion. They were not Christians, clearly, right? I mean, this is the first time the gospel has come in this way after Christ has died. These were Jewish people. They were adherents and practiced, they practiced the Jewish religion. Either they had been born in it, or they were proselytes to it. Now you see all the different places where they come from in the previous verses. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and so forth. Right? But they're all Jewish people. And that's the point I want you to understand this evening, that Peter is preaching to Jewish people. So what that means for us tonight, then, is we, in, the, in, in our own time, and with our own culture, and with our own worldview, we need to switch, as it were, right? And to think like how a Jewish people, how Jewish people would have heard the preaching of Peter. Are you with me there? That's going to be critical this evening, isn't it? To hear this preaching of Peter as a Jewish person, as a person steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, as a person steeped in the, all the ritual and practice of the Jewish religion, we have to hear it as such a person would have heard it. Now I come then into the, to look at this text then. Now I told you that in the, in the churches that we are a part of, that we see this word, and for your children, as a formula. As a formula. Now what do I mean by a formula? Well, my friends, if I said to you this evening, I'm going to the bank to deposit a check. No one here would understand that I'm going to go to the bank of a river and dig a hole, put a check in there, and put the dirt in over top of it and go on my way. Right? Because in our context, 
we understand very clearly what those words mean. That is a formula for us, right? I'm not going to the bank of a river. I'm going to a financial institution to take a check, which again is a formula all in itself, a check. What is a check? Well, we all know what that is, right? A formula is a, is a pattern of words that has a given meaning in a given context. A specific meaning, I mean. A specific meaning in a given context. So if I say to you I'm going to deposit a bank, or deposit a check in a bank, you all know what that means. Because it's something of a formula, isn't it? It has a specific meaning in our context. I suppose if I said that in another context, people might wonder, what is a check? What is a bank? What does it mean to deposit? Let me switch to something more theological. If I say to you the five points of Calvinism, well, in this particular context of a united Reformed denomination, we know what that means. And yet, my friends, I can tell you, you can open up the works of Calvin from, from start to finish. You'll never find any place in Calvin where he lays out his five points and says, now these are the five points of what I teach. And yet, over the years of people studying Calvin, they have distilled out of his writings these five points. And in fact, our great Synod of Dort, right, kind of uh, even uh, made that sort of a formula for our churches that we love and respect. But to someone else, the five points of Calvinism? Well, first of all, who's Calvin? And, and five points? I guess I'll go to Calvin and I'll open the institutes and I'll look for the five points. But you'll page, page, page. Through chapter after chapter, you'll never find them. But in this particular context, five points of Calvinism is a formula. We understand what that means. Now, what I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, is that these words, and for your children, is a formula for those Jewish people. And that it's only in our context that we think, well, that must mean that Peter was preaching to the adults there, and of course to any children that were present as well, that if they repented, that they could receive the sign of that uh, grace, of God's saving grace, and they could be uh, baptized and they would receive the forgiveness of their sins. But again, I don't think that's hearing it as a Jewish person would have heard it. And that's what we have to do to understand this text properly. Now, why would I say then that this is a formula? A formula. Well, there's certain texts, my friends, that I'd like to that I'd like to take you to. Where we see these these texts or these uh, this this way of speaking. And especially do we find this way of speaking when the text concerns covenant making. Covenant making. Now, if I go to Genesis 9, this is where God is making a covenant with Noah. And in Genesis 9, and verse 9, listen carefully now, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Again, the same basic idea as what we have in Peter. You and your children. Now, if we go to Genesis 17, where God makes his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17 and verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Again, we see the same words, don't we? Now, this, is, uh, this takes place in many different places in Scripture. I, there are others I could quote. But I'd like you to take you now to the passage that I read with you. 
Ezekiel 16. Because here we have in such a powerful and graphic way God speaking of the people of Israel and especially of their children. And I want you to note how he speaks of them. Now, Ezekiel 16 is this picture, dear friends, where God pictures the nation of Israel as a baby that was born and abandoned by its parents. And as this baby has been abandoned and is wallowing in its blood, dying of lack of of nutrition, hasn't been washed, this baby is dying, God is pictured then as this man who comes and he speaks to that child, live. And he takes that child, he washes that child, he feeds that child, he provides for that child. And throughout the chapter, he clothes that child. And he gives that child the most magnificent clothing, gold, jewelry, robes. And it says, and it says in verse 13, Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. In other words, the very best foods God provided. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. But then... You read in verse 15, right, this great transition. You trusted in your beauty and played the whore. You became a prostitute. And you took the great beauty that I had given you, your clothing, your gold, your jewelry, and you used them as a prostitute would use them with her lovers. That's the context in Ezekiel 16. And I want you to notice, my friends, The recurring first-person pronouns here, the the pronoun my and mine. Look with me at verse 17. Ezekiel 16 and verse 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil my oil, notice, my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them, that is before her lovers, for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. But now to our purpose, my friends, in verse 20. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me. In other words, just as the incense was God's, The embroidered garments were God's. The oil. So God says these were my children. My children that you had borne to me, says God. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter, he says, that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. Now, my friends, it's very clear in that passage, isn't it? that these children belong to God. They are God's property. My children. And that's why, my friends, I say that in the Jewish mind, to a person that was steeped in the Jewish religion, their children were God's children. And so when God said to Noah, I'm making a covenant with you and your offspring. When God says to Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you and your offspring. And when God said to the children of Israel that he's making a covenant with them and all their children after them, that became a formula in their minds. That became a formula in their minds. And your children. And the theology of that, my friends, is given us here in Ezekiel 16. Those are my children. And God says, you took my children and slaughtered them. 
You offered them up to idols. Now, my friends, all this then, to give you this, this, uh, this understanding as a Jewish person. And let me ask you that then, and this is something that you can ask when this comes up in your own discussions with others. Again, this is, a, this is not a critical doctrine of the gospel that we're talking about tonight, is it? Uh, the idea of, of, of baptism and, and so on, infant baptism. But still, uh, I find so many people in the Reformed churches who, 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 who think of our practice of infant baptism as something that we do, but uh, it's kind of just a tradition. And it's, it's kind of cute, isn't it, to see the children get baptized. And the, the parents can dress the child in a nice clothing. Oh, my friends, it's much more than that. And I know you know that, I'm, I, I know you know that, but I want to give you this, this understanding that now when Peter is speaking and when he's preaching, he doesn't just say that, re- that you are to repent and that there's a promise for you and for your children. That and for your children is a formula. And those Jewish people would have understood exactly what he's saying. Now let me, let me bring this back then uh, to understand the significance of this. In the Old Testament, we have then this household principle, right? That's the title of the sermon tonight, this household principle. Sometimes it'll be called the genealogical principle. And our Baptist brothers and sisters will say, they agree with us, right, that there is such a household principle in the Old Testament. And I think I've established that to you tonight. But they say when the New Covenant came, and when God, uh, when Jesus Christ came and established his kingdom and inaugurated the New Covenant, right, when when, uh, when Jesus came, and, and certainly the, the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the inauguration of this new covenant, the Baptist people will have us to understand that now that genealogical principle has gone away, that it's done. They said now it's individual, that when an individual comes to faith in Christ, he believes in Christ, he gives a credible profession of that to the elders of the church, he requests baptism, and he is baptized. But we may not do to our infant children under the new covenant what was done to them under the old covenant. That is the teaching that they would give. And so the question I would set before you then this evening, my friends, is does the household principle continue? Does that principle of and your children continue under the new covenant? And my friends, I want to make clear this evening that this is simply a question that Scripture answers. I'm not asking you for what, with all due respect, what you think, right? Or, or what, say, Louis Burkhoff said, or what Calvin said, right? What does the Scripture teach on this point? Now, there is no Scripture in the New Testament that would speak explicitly to this issue, that would say, now the household principle continues under the New Covenant. Otherwise, of course, there probably wouldn't be much debate about this, would there? But I bring you back to the text. And that as a Jewish person listening to the Apostle Peter preach, how would you have understood that? Remember now, all of those Jewish people that are hearing Peter preach have this idea in their head, right? That God deals with parents and their children as a unit, as a whole. That is that household principle. That when God makes a covenant with the head of the household, he makes it with the whole family. And all the family are reckoned to be participants in that covenant. Certainly that was the case in the Old Testament. There's no disagreement on that. 
Did it stop? Does God mean for us to cease that principle when we have the inauguration of the new covenant with the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit upon his church? And now you hear Peter, and he says, there's a promise for you. For those of you who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, there is this promise for you and for your children. Again, I don't know how you can, you, can, you can possibly hear that and resist the idea that the Jewish hearers of Peter at that time would have known full well what Peter meant by that. And they would have understood that when they came to repentance and to faith in the Savior, with great gladness and joy, they would have presented themselves to the elders, to the apostles for baptism. That's what Peter said, right? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And that the apostles would have taken those adults with their children down into the waters of baptism. And the waters of baptism would have been poured over them. And the family together would have stepped up out of those waters, probably many pools in the, in the city of Jerusalem that they could have used for this purpose. Whether it was an immersion or whether it was pouring or whatever, a sprinkling, is not so important, right? But that the whole family would have come up out of those waters having received and having sealed to them by this visible ceremony God's forgiving grace. You and your children. Well, my friends, let me make some points of application on this then. My first point of application is regarding then uh, our children. Children, may I speak to you this evening? Children, and young people. It's a serious thing to consider what we heard this evening. That God lays claim to you. And that God says, these are my children. That God, by, the, by his covenant of grace and by placing you in this family and in this congregation, has brought you into his covenant and has even put the seal of that covenant upon you and he now lays claim to you. And he calls you my children. That means that as the catechism teaches us, I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what God calls you to this evening, my dear children. God has already placed on you his claim. And he calls you now to, to answer back. When you were a little infant, you couldn't do it. You were completely ignorant of what was taking place here at the front of the church. But as you begin to grow, and as you begin to think about these things, you can think about that blessed promise of the gospel that also is unfolded to you, that you can take hold of that. That God brings it so close to you. And he says, my children... My children. That's such a blessed privilege, my dear children, to have. It's why Jesus said that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for those who heard the gospel, who were part, who were, who were joined, at least then externally only, right, with the, with the covenant of grace, but who never took hold of it by faith. 
so, my dear children, I ask you to consider. Maybe you can even ask your parents, what does that mean? When the preacher sprinkles the water on the infant child, and that child receives the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a blessed privilege that is to receive that. I want to speak also to the parents this evening. To the parents. Before I, before I move to the parents, let me say one more thing to the children. I think this will be interesting to everybody. This comes from uh, Wilhelmus Abrachel wrote a very large book of theology. And he writes in a very powerful way to children and to young people. In the first place, he writes to those children who are walking with God. Listen to what he says. This is a somewhat longer quote. Bear with me. He says, Brockle says to children, he says, strive to be exercised in this, that is in the, 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 the promise brought to you in baptism, and it will greatly strengthen you that without your knowledge you have already been sealed in your infancy. Yield not to unbelief by being tossed to and fro, continually asking yourself, am I regenerated? Am I already a believer? And is baptism indeed a seal to me? How this will injure you and rob you of the efficacy or the power of baptism. You are indeed conscious that sins, even the sins of your heart, are a bitter grief and a heavy burden to you. You know indeed that your heart yearns for and desires reconciliation with God for the blood of Christ unto reconciliation and to be continually in the presence of God and to live in his fear. You know that for this reason you make Christ your choice time and again. Receive him and surrender yourself to him so that he may work all things in you by his spirit. It is also your objective not to sin but rather to live a life pleasing unto the Lord. You know that it is truthfully so. This is now an evidence of grace, and thus also that baptism is to you a seal of the covenant. Therefore, apply this to yourself and rejoice. What a beautiful, what a beautiful word that is to children, to young people who are striving, not perfectly, we know that, but who are striving to walk with God in a life of obedience day by day. What a blessed seal that is to you, that God really does know you. He really watches over you. He cares for you. He's leading you. And he has forgiven all your sins. You can believe that. You can take hold of that this evening and be certain of it. But Brockle has another word. He has a word for those children and young people who have walked away from the covenant of God. This one's a little shorter. He says, You were esteemed to be a true child of the covenant as long as you did not manifest the contrary. Now you do manifest the contrary. And thus I must say, you have neither part nor lot in Christ, nor in all the promises of the covenant of grace. Must you besides cause the congregation to be slandered and Christ to be held in contempt? Choose one of the two. Either live a godly life and walk worthy of the gospel, or if not, come again before the pulpit and publicly recant your baptism before the congregation, declaring that you are displeased with the fact that your parents had you baptized. Then depart and live as ungodly as you will, for then you will no longer be a disgrace to the church. Well, those are strong words, aren't they? Those are very strong words, and I would encourage you to get the, the book and to read the whole section. It's, it's longer than this. But it's true, isn't it? That when we 
have cast aside the covenant of grace, then the covenant of grace cuts both ways, doesn't it? It's a great blessing to those who are walking with God, who are trusting in Christ. But what a crushing curse it will be to those who push it aside, who want nothing to do with it, who see no value in it. Well, my friends, I want to move then to the parents. I want to speak to parents this evening. Parents, what have you done with God's children? What have you done with God's children? We talk a lot in our day about being a provider, don't we? Especially men, right? Of fathers, we want to provide for our families. What does that mean? Does that mean that you provide them with the latest smartphone, the best education? College, new car, right? All these things that the world tells us is part of providing. My friends, what about taking your children? What about taking your children and speaking to them about the covenant of grace that God sealed to them here in this church or whatever church it may be? Is that a part of your parenting? Is that a part, fathers, of your providing? Because God asks you this evening, what have you done with my children? You see, they don't belong to you in the first place. They have God's name sealed to them in that blessed sacrament of baptism. And God calls you to raise them as his children. That changes things, doesn't it? I suppose if I took my children and, and gave them to you to babysit for an evening or something, right? You'd watch over them carefully, right? Right? Just like you would anybody else's children. They're, well, they're so-and-so's children, right? You would, you would have a sense of responsibility. My friends, how much more with God's children, with God's children that you have in your possession. When you wake up on Monday morning and your children come into the room, look at them, see them. These are God's children that God has entrusted to me to raise for him. How this should stir us up. How this should stir us up to, to speak to them, to model for them, and to, and to be all that we can be in terms of the means of grace to them. My friends, what a, also an encouragement to us, because I know that there are parents whose children have gone off and who are not walking with God, who are not living and walking with Jesus day by day. That grief that parents feel when they see the children that they love, the children that they reared, the children that they prayed with, the children that they brought to church, the children that they brought to Sunday school and catechism classes, who have walked away from the truth, who see nothing beautiful in Jesus Christ, they see nothing valuable in the gospel. My friends, here also, God has given you, here it is, this is the baptismal font, this, God has given you a ground upon which to plead for those children. That you can say, Lord, your name is printed on that child. You've made a covenant with that child, Lord. Now, I can't guarantee, right, that God saves. God saves sovereignly. But this gives you a ground to pray, my friends, and to cry out to God. I remember an elder, or a, a, a woman told me one time, she was an older woman, and she went through a time in her life when she was not walking with God. And she told me with tears, how her, her father was an elder in the church. And he came in the church one day and he walked up the aisle. It was during the week and there was nobody around. The church was dark. And as he came up the aisle, I guess that was how he had to get to the church office or something, but he had to walk past. And he walked past the baptismal font and he placed his hand there. And he cried out for his child. He cried out for his daughter that was, that was walking away from him. That's such a touching story to us, isn't it, parents? 
when we think of the ground that God has given us to plead for our children and to cry out for those who have chosen to walk away from His grace. That baptism says they're never totally gone. That we can still take hold of that promise ourselves and plead with God to call them out of darkness and to bring them back into the church, to bring them back to faith in Christ, to rescue them from their own destruction. Well, my friends, I, I leave then you with these words. What happy words in our text, and for your children. And I pray that you'd be busy with those words in prayer before God for your children and for the children of the congregation, and that it would be an inexpressible blessing and joy for us to know the care and the grace and the love that God has, even for our infant children. May God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Almighty God, we draw near to you this evening, having heard these words, Lord, these happy words from your word, that you will make a covenant even with, your chil even with infant children who can answer back nothing, who can say nothing, who can give us no profession of faith. Lord, we pray that this would be such a comfort and such a beautiful thing to the congregation when we read the preaching of Peter this evening, that to you and to your children these promises have been made. Lord, where there are parents here whose hearts are crushed in grief for children who have walked away from you, I pray, O oh God, that you would give them the gladness of heart to see their children return to the gospel with broken and contrite hearts, to return to you, to find refuge, O oh Lord, in Christ, and to also have the assurance and the knowledge that their sins are forgiven. Lord, please bless us then this evening. We pray for safe return to our homes and grant us a good and happy week together as congregation. Bind us together. Give us love for each other. Give us prayer, O oh Lord, a spirit of prayer for each other and for the pastor. And we pray that your name would be glorified in all that we say and do. Keep us from sin and glorify your grace in our lives. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.